Okay, I'm glad you're here. And um, I want to talk about uh, a number of things today, but uh, basically I want to talk about the goodness of God and radishes and squash and turnips. Um, you'll see how all these things actually do connect. Um, uh, so let me just start with the goodness of God. So I was talking with someone recently, and um, and they wanted to they, they wanted to know uh, where do we see that God is good? And by the way, this is such a fundamental aspect of our of our understanding and our faith that it's um, it's really worthy of an article or a book or something like that just to lay out all the sources. And we had sort of like this this back and forth. And, you know, um, with, without, without uh, being too comprehensive, just to, just to give you the, just the tip of the iceberg, I mentioned that it says repeatedly in the beginning of Gracious that God made this and it's good and it's made this and it's good. And, and all over, all over the, the beginning um, verses of creation itself, it talks about the goodness of this world. Um, it even is called very good at one point. And he said, no, 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 but that's, that's the creation. Where does it say God himself is good? Now... Why would a bad God make a good creation? That, so so the, the question itself is a little bit uh, mysterious in my mind, but it's clearly coming from a more, I think, emotional place. But, but anyway, that aside, um, so, so he wanted a, a, an outright declaration. Well, I said, well, you know, look, look in Ashrei. Ashrei goes alphabetically. The letter Tet says, Tov Hashem Lekol, V'racham Av God is good to all. His mercies are on all of his works. And he said, no, that's in the Psalms. I want to see it in the five books where God says, I am good. So I thought about it a little bit, and, and, and this is what I said to him. And, uh, and it's, it's something that we have to, I think, think about and absorb, because to me it, it, it was a very strong point. And I haven't heard this said by anyone, but um, it's, it's, just, it, it's just there, so... Um, the incidents with the spies uh, you, you may be familiar with. Um, this was really a, a huge turning point in, in the history of the world. The Jewish people had left Egypt, had been taken out of Egypt, and we were on our way to the land of Israel. And then comes the incident of the spies, which, which delays the trip for 40 years. The, the, the 40 years wandering in the desert, right? A whole generation dies out. So, so what happened exactly? So... So, uh, Moshe uh, sent spies, or scouts, is probably a more accurate word, to, to go into the land to just kind of check it out. And they come back and, and uh, they, they say over a bad report to the Jewish people who believe them. And that bad report is that the land is filled with giants and basically it's going to be a mass slaughter. If we go in there, we're going to get wiped out. And the Jewish people started crying and crying and crying. And Hashem says, and if you, you can look it up, you can see the, the, the Pesach itself. It's in, the, in Bad Midbar 1411, the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 14, verse 11. Hashem says to Moshe, how long will they not believe in me? Now, if you think about that, you can ask a very big question. How long will they not believe in me? Wait a second. They believe very greatly in Hashem. He's the one who's going to kill them. <laughs> right? I mean, their faith in the existence of God is to the extreme. 
There's no question about that. Clearly they believed in him. So if that's the case, then why is Hashem saying, how long will they not believe in me? And now here's the kicker, so listen carefully. Because to believe in Hashem and not to believe in His goodness is not to believe in Hashem. Let me say that one more time. To believe in Hashem and not to believe that He's good is not to believe in Hashem. And so, this is such a core understanding of what Judaism is. And, um, and so we have to go a little bit further into that because, because this, this helps to, to deepen what it means to, to believe as a Jew. And by that I mean, if you were to go up to, um, I don't know, a hundred people and to ask them, um, uh, what, what does it mean to believe in God? Or do you believe in God? Or something like that. Most people, the point I'm trying to make is that most people believe that to believe in the existence of God is to believe in God. That those are, those are one and the same things. To believe in the existence of God is to believe in God. And that is not the Torah understanding at all. To believe in God is to believe in a lot of things. There, there, there are actually a number of things that we have to believe in in order to be called believers in God. And the Rambam famously has something called the Yud Gimel Ikarim, the 13 essential principles of faith, where he distills this checklist, if you will, and then that's called believing in God. And by the way, just as a little advertisement, this night, so Tuesday night, I'm going to be, um, I'm going, to be uh, going uh, through the 13 articles of belief, whatever it is, starting, uh, starting at 2.30 in the morning. And then we'll go to 5 and try to cover just as much ground as we can. Um, so, so one of the things that someone has to believe in, that the Rambam brings down, is that God guides us. That God has a plan for us. In other words, again, to believe in God and not to believe that He has a plan for the world and a plan for us is not to believe. You have to believe that God has a plan. That's a, that's a big deal. That's a big deal for the world and for you. That, that's, um, you know, and so, so, so then you... So then you... Okay, here's the point. Here, let's get a little bit deeper for a moment. You see, and it's really just coming to me just this moment, but it's, it's a very, very fundamental thing. You see, I gave a talk, by the way, if you want to look it up. I called it The Big Secret No One's Telling You. And, um, and, and, and the bottom line, just to, to sum it up, it's, is, is the, the essential nature of creating a personal relationship with God. And if you look at the articles of belief and you start to factor them all together, you realize what, what is happening is not just a further intellectual exercise of, oh, and plus, I also have to believe in this and oh, I have to believe in that too. And it's sort of like trying to remember, you know, math formulas for, you know, for a quiz in school. I mean, 
the point is, is that as you learn these different things more deeply, you realize that at a certain point, this nature of belief leaves the brain and starts to enter into the heart. That what's, what's happening is a relationship is being crafted, is being sculpted. And that that's called belief. In other words, it's, we're trying to get a more sophisticated take right now. We're trying to understand that this idea of belief is not just an intellectual, abstract idea, that there is this force that exists out there. Because if you start to understand that God is guiding the world and God is guiding you personally, then all of a sudden it's sort of like, well, it's not just like this, God isn't just this force out there. God is someone who's actually guiding me. Alright, well now, now it's very personal. Right? Like Jaws 3. This time it's personal. You know? Anyway. <laughs> I always like the taglines. You know, like Leprechaun 2. The luck of the Irish is about to run out. That's another favorite. Um, City Slicker 2 or 3. The Legend of Curly's Gold. Another... Another one that will live on in ignominy. Um, so, so, so it's about it. You, you realize, you realize that belief is actually very personal. It's a personal relationship that's being described. Now, in terms of this guidance, see that transforms everything. Now, some people get that. Most people don't. That's, and, and, you know, I, I, I give it over in that, that other talk that I mentioned, which is one of the tragedies, I think, of the, um, uh, the, the Jewish um, yeshiva system right now, <clears throat> from what I've been able to observe. And they do a lot of things right, believe me. I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical. But there's a pretty, pretty big thing that I think is missing that I've noticed, is that is that that developing that sense of a relationship, that personal relationship, is not there so much. There's a lot of giving over of information. You know, people are getting a lot of, a high level of Jewish literacy. But it's just head stuff. You know, it's like, um, the the way I think I put it in that talk was that it's like learning the rules of of baseball uh, all day and never actually playing baseball. You know, it's like, you know, God is a participation sport, basically. That's the, that's the bottom line. And if you're just kind of like reading and thinking, then that's, that's, that's a very small part of it. Um, so now, with this in mind, let's move on to radishes, squash, and turnips, okay? Because that, they, they're, they're connected. So, so just to review this point, that that to believe in God and not to believe in His goodness is not to believe in God. And we see that from the incidents with the spies. Now, now I'm, learning, um, I'm learning some of the uh, laws. Uh, it's in, it's in, if you want to look it up, it's in uh, the Shulchan Aruch in Yoridea, uh, Simen Sadivav. And in the Gomorrah, it's in Chulun, on uh, the bottom of page... Uh, Kuf Yudalaf 111b, just on the bottom there. So, so it's talking about um, it's talking about some stuff that's actually very, very kind of uh, comes up a lot. This is a there's a real practical halacha here, 
that comes up a lot in the kitchen. But you'll see there's actually a very beautiful idea about how we can live our lives uh, and the importance of goodness, the importance of goodness and understanding God's goodness and, um, and, and, and absorbing, you'll see I mean that word very literally, absorbing God's goodness and, and, and how that can affect the rest of the world. So, so what we're talking about right now, uh, I'm going to give over just the, the basic uh, laws right now. And then you will, will, will go deeper into them and you'll see some of these other points. If you have a neat knife, okay, and um, there's a certain category of food that's called sharp. In, in Hebrew we say it's harif. Okay, so what's an example of that? So the example that the Gomorrah gives is a radish. Okay, a radish or a beet, say. Okay, but, but we know that, that that category is larger though practically speaking, for today's kitchen, and, and just so we should know, it's onions, and it's pineapple, and it's um, garlic, things like that. So if you have a meat knife, and you, um, you cut a radish, to use the example from the Gomorrah, what happens is, is that the, 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 we, the, the meat essence of the knife, what we call the bleus, you know, that's a technical term, the meat essence of the knife will go into the radish because it's sharp, because it has this highly sort of acidic content. Okay? So what's the net result? That means that even though this radish is not milk or meat, it's parv, right? You could eat it with milk or meat. But because you've taken a meat knife, the essence of the meat knife is going into this radish, and now you can't eat this radish with milk because you've it's absorbed the meat content from the knife, okay, due to its acidic nature, right, its sharpness, its harif nature, okay. So, so that's a very basic level, and, and we should just know that in terms of our own kind of like kitchens and, and things like that. And there are many applications, and it's a much bigger topic, but I want to go further into it, okay. So now, you see, now there's another level. Let's just get an overview, and then we'll go back and we'll understand like the sort of the, the more philosophical content that, are, that, I, that I'll give over shortly. Now, there's another category of food. The Gomorrah mentions it squash. Okay? So, squash is sweet. Okay? Now, because it's sweet, if you take that same meat knife and you cut the squash... What happens is, because of its sweetness, and you can be sort of philosophizing on your own as I'm saying this, and I'll make all these points explicit, but because of its sweetness, it doesn't absorb the taste from the nut. You see? It's, it affects it superficially, though, because that knife, we say, has a thin layer of fat on it, like, because maybe it cuts some meat, there's some meat grease on it. Again, to use a technical word, we call that shamnunus. So that thin level of fat can't, is, 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 will get on the, on the piece of squash, right? The gourd. And so, what you have to do is you have to sort of like shake it off. You have to kind of wipe it off. But then it's, but then you can eat that squash, even though you cut it with that same meat knife you can eat it with milk. Because it hasn't absorbed the taste of the knife. In this case, the meat taste of the knife, right? Because that's our example right now. Okay.
now, now you have the turnip. Right? Now, we should all strive to be turnips, right? Like, I just thought, you know, like, a very mysterious title for something would be God's Sweetest Turnip. <laughs> just because you wouldn't really... The turnip doesn't get a lot of press. I think the turnip has to fire its agent, you know, like, get someone else representing it. Because the turnip turns out to be quite a hero, in this, in this, uh, in this instance, the humble turnip. You know, it says in it says in Pirkeiavos that there's no thing without its hour, right? So the turnip, even the turnip has its hour, you know. So, so the turnip is so sweet. You ready for this? This turnip is so sweet that it actually imparts its sweetness to the knife. Do you hear that? Not only doesn't it, not only doesn't it not absorb the essence, the flavor of the knife, and get that inside of itself. But it's so sweet, it puts its sweet flavor onto the knife. So much so, that if you cut a turnip, right, with this meat knife, and then you go and cut something sharp, right, like a beet, then what, then you would say, well, maybe the beet absorbs the meat flavor, because the meat has this sharp quality, right? No, because the turnip is so sweet, it's put its sweetness on the knife, and now the beet gets the taste of the turnip, not the meat flavor from the knife. Okay, so this, uh, these are the basic laws as they're spelled out by the Gemara in Chulin. Okay, so now let's, let's, let's go more deeply. What, what's, what's going on here? You see, God is guiding us and God is shaping us. God is cutting, if you will. You know, sometimes if you want to make, you have a garment, you want to make a beautiful garment, how does a garment start off? You know, from a bolt of cloth. It's one large piece of cloth. And then you cut, you cut, you cut, you cut, you cut, and you shape, and you make something beautiful. Okay? That's actually an example that I heard from Rabbi Aaron, that idea of, the nature of cutting, but in terms of the formation of something beautiful, you know? Sometimes you can think of it another way, too, like... Well, let's stay with that. So, so cutting and shaping, you know? And guiding. See, this is often associated with um, Nida Sadin, which... which, or Gvura... These are all sort of technical terms, but what they what they commonly will refer to these as God's judgment. But but what is gvura? Some people feel attached to this idea of gvura with punishment, like ah, God is coming down with din. God is coming down with this quality of judgment or whatever it is. But what is gvura really? Gvura, as it was explained to me, is shaping. This is why women are associated with this quality of gvur. Because they take what a man gives them and they mold it and they shape it into something real. You know, that's the, that's the birth process. That's, that's gvur. That's why women have that association with gvur. Because women are expert shapers and, 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 and crafts... I, I went... I, crafts people. <laughs> there we go. Um, if you think of the home also, the home itself is 
shaping the atmosphere, shaping shaping so much. So so what I'm trying to give is a more is a deeper, more fundamental um, explanation of what it means to be guided, what this cutting process is, because we're talking about how the knife cuts, right? That that it's not necessarily just, oh, I wanted to do this, and that avenue got cut off from me. I wanted to go this way, but it got cut. And now I can't go that way, and I wanted to go that way. So, this is how people react emotionally to their circumstances. But what's happening is there's a guidance taking place. There's a shaping, this gvura, like the formation of a home, like the formation of a child. Something is being formed and shaped, right? So how are we experiencing that shaping, that cutting, if you will, right? Well, if a person, if a person is like a radish, if a person is very sharp, and I'm talking now as a personality trait, I'm not talking about, you know, mentally, you know, keen. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking personality-wise, like, Sharp, and you could almost say sour, because that's almost the same. Uh, it's almost the same idea, you know, in terms of the taste. If a person like that is like that, then they absorb the taste of the knife. In other words, what does that mean? That means, well, they don't just react to. They take it personally. God is out to get me. I, I got that avenue got cut off from me. So instead of saying, well, maybe that's not God's will, right? And of course, a person can't give up too easily. A person has to put in a certain amount of effort. You know, like I, I often think that if you haven't tried twice, you haven't tried once. You know, you have to at least put in a certain requisite effort, right? Holy chutzpah, like Rabbi Nachman would call it. But then you can't also be deluded. At a certain point, you have to take no for an answer, Right? When that happens, when you can take no for an answer, then you have to have good friends and teachers and things like that to help you get to that place, right? I'm not talking about giving up too easily. But, but nonetheless, if an avenue has been told to you that that's not going to happen, basically, a sour person or sharp person, like someone on the radish level, absorbs the negativity, absorbs the taste of the knife. You see? Takes it personally. Ah, God's out to get me. All right. Now, what's the next level? The next level is the squash, right? Squash is sweet. So, what happens if you cut the squash? The squash doesn't absorb the taste of the knife because the squash is sweet. So, if a person is sweet, if they understand the sweetness of God, they're connected with the sweetness of God then they're not absorbing this negativity. They're going, okay, God is good. God doesn't want that for me. He wants something else for me. You know, I remember I lost a job a number of years ago, and I told Rip Shlomo, I said, you know, I told him, and he said to me, just, he said, God wants something better for you. You know, just right out. I never forgot it. Just, God wants something better for you. And, um... And I know there are things that I've wanted in the past that if I had gotten them, I the vault. You know, as much as I wanted them then, I look back and I see it as the biggest salvation in my life. Oh my God. Thank you, God, for not giving me that. You know? 
So, so anyway, so the, but, but here, listen to this nuance psychologically, okay? If you remember the halacha that I told you, that it says in the Gomorrah, because we assume that there's a kind of like a fatty uh, film on the knife of meat, a meat residue on the knife, that if you cut the squash, even though the squash itself doesn't absorb the taste of the knife, nonetheless that thin film gets a little bit on the squash. So you have to shake it off. You have to wipe it off. So how does that translate in terms of our, 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 our day-to-day experiences? Because we're human beings and we have emotions. You know? And if we receive a cutting, if you will, if we receive what we would call bad news, as much as we say everything is good news, ultimately, but nonetheless we're human beings, and there is such a thing as bad news, there's even a blessing over bad news, because the rabbis recognize that we have emotions and we are human beings, as much as they're telling us everything is good, but they also recognize and prize our humanity. So as much as we experience it as bad news, we will, so the film gets on us. You understand? Even if we're sweet, even if we're, on, even if we're holding by this level of the squash, right? Even if we are sweet, nonetheless, the bad news does get on us. But what can you do? You shake it off, you wipe it off. Because it's a superficial thing. In other words, so you give yourself some time, you give another person some time, right? Because remember, it says in Perkeabos, you don't try to console someone while the dead is before them. See, that's, that's a misguided thing. Sometimes people like, you know, sort of like, you lost your mom, cheer up! <laughs> it's like, that is like, not a Torah thing to say. There's no Torah in that statement. I understand you're coming from a good place. <laughs> Hold on to that thought. There will be a time for that thought. But it's not right now. It is not right now. Because this person is a human being who is in the midst of suffering. Okay, so... So you give yourself a little bit of time and you have to honor yourself in the same way that you'd honor someone else, certainly, to treat yourself properly. It's not just that God is in everyone except you. God's also in you. So you have to prize your, your own self. You know, um, there's a great, one of the great, great, great uh, things I ever heard or read. Um, the Sadia Gon, who was the leader of the Jewish people, um, and this was in, you know, the approximately the 800s. And, uh, you know, just one of the all-time great, great rabbis. Um, so the Sadi Agon uh, was staying at an inn. And he was checking out, and he left. And as he's leaving, uh, some people recognize him, you know, as being, he was the leader of the Jewish people. So, wow, you know, there he is. And everyone was, you know, crowding around him. Oh my God, but they you going and, you know, everything like this. And the innkeeper, the, 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 the owner of the place where he was staying, did not know who he was. And all of a sudden he sees out the window or whatever it is, he sees that there's this throng around one of his guests and he comes out and he finds out that the Saudi Agon has just been staying in his inn and he's checked out and that he didn't accord him any, any respect, any honor, any, any different treatment than, than whoever. And he felt terrible and he walked up to him and he, he apologized to him. And the Saudi Agon just basically 
broke down and thought to himself, you know, he said, each one of us is housing Hashem. Right? Because there's a piece of God. Our souls are inside of us. Each one of us is an innkeeper. And we haven't just got the head of the Jewish people. We've got God himself inside of us. And how much, how much honor are we according this guest? How are we treating this guest who's living in our home? Right? So, 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 you know, as much as you give someone else maybe a little bit of time to get over something, you also have to give yourself that, that same level of treatment. Okay. But now, we have the exalted, exalted, exalted level of the turnip. <laughs> Just that sentence itself, right? Um, well, I gotta get some turnips, you know. I like. I want to go to like to the marketplace and like you know just stand in front of the turnips and kiss them, you know. So, so what does the turnip do? The turnip, the turnip is so sweet. It's so sweet. It's not just about it not absorbing the taste of the knife. And not even on a superficial level. We don't even talk about that. It's putting turnip mojo on the knife. It's putting its sweetness on the knife. Now, what, is, what does that mean? That means that... Now, now, we have to hear the second part of this. If you remember. So now, if you take that knife now, and you cut something sour, something sharp, harif, like a beet, it gets turnip on it. Okay? So, there are people who can be so good and so sweet that the news of the world, the world itself gets filtered through them, so much so that sharp people, sour people, only hear the goodness. You see, they don't receive, they don't, they, they're getting it through the turnip, they're not getting it through the knife. Because they're having it properly interpreted for them. Right? The sweetness of God. That means that the world can experience the sweetness of God, which is the truth. Through you. Through the way you live. Through the way you understand things. You go, oh, what does that mean? Oh, that means that? Oh, okay. They would be normally inclined to, just on their own, to to believe something very negative. But, oh, oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. They're getting, these beats are getting the sweetness from the turn. So that's, so that's for all of us. That's for all of us to strive for. Now, how do you get to that place, right? So, how do you, how do you become sweet? How do you become sweet? So, it was I. I witnessed something really nice, you know. I I, I had just learned this. This was on Friday, and the the Rosh Kolel. I was learning this in a Kolel. I went up to the Rosh Kolel and I I told him what I just told you, right? And uh, he said, "So how do you become sweet?" <laughs> he said, "Torah." And then he turned to the person that he learns with, 
And I wish I had a camera recording this. I don't know if it's going to sound like much when I give it over right now, but it was, it was a great moment. He said, he just turned to him, his learning partner, and he said, where do we see the sweetness of Torah? And a nanosecond didn't pass where he quoted a Pusik perfectly, straight out. And then he said, yeah, that's in Tehillim number Yudtes, number, Psalm number 19. And he quoted it, and it says, it's talking about Torah, and it says, it's sweeter than honey. You know, I mean, Google doesn't work faster than what I saw. You know how it goes zero, like it gives you the time it took? It sh- you know, Google's a bit of a show-off, in a very modest way, by the way. But it, it doesn't just perform the function, it tells you how good it is. If you look at it in the upper right-hand corner, it'll tell you, go, 0.12... But this was faster than Google. And he didn't announce how, by the way, how quickly he did it. It was just, as, you know, I'll tell you something incredible. Um, um, Rabbi Gedalia Fleer was uh, very, very close, like best friends with Rabbi Ari Kaplan. And uh, one of the talks Rabbi Fleer gives, uh, and you can hire, he's available to be hired, uh, is is he talks about his friendship and his, his, his relationship with Rabbi Kaplan. It's an amazing talk, I heard it. And one of the things that he mentions in this talk is that Rabbi Kaplan, Ari Kaplan's math IQ, was so high that it couldn't be measured. And the, the way I understand that, I don't, I'm, I'm not positive that this is correct, what I'm about to tell you. He got everything right. So I, but, I, but I think it was more than that, actually. I think that on some of the tests, how long you take to answer might actually impact on what level of score you get. And he answered the question as soon as it was asked, which means they had no gauge for the level of his genius. So, so anyway, this was one of these moments where it was sort of like the answer came you know, as soon as the last syllable of the question was finished. But anyway, let's not lose the point. The point is, is, that, is that Torah makes a person sweet. Torah makes a person sweet. And, you see, this is why it's so important. You know, this is why it's so important to receive the Torah anew every single day. And, uh, and how indispensable it is. And let me, let, me, let me just explain. You see, in terms of the way, in terms of the way our, 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 our composition, the way God makes us, we're part spiritual and we're part physical. Okay? Now granted, even our physicality admits exists amidst the oneness of God. So even our physicality is sort of spiritual, but nonetheless, we experience our own selves as our intellectual souls, what we call the nefesh sichlius and the nefesh behema, and our animalistic souls. Okay? Which means we have to do like really bummer type things like eat and go to the bathroom. As, as much as we would just like to transcend our own physicalities, we have a certain animal nature to us. But that's also from God, by the way. I mean, there's, there's, there's beauty to that also. There are blessings that we make after everything, you know, even physical things. So it's, 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 
That's, that's, that's actually one of our prize elements, that we can bring God down to this level and then elevate everything physical. So it's not, it's not a negative, is what I'm trying to say. But nonetheless, what, the point I am trying to make, though, is that things don't automatically go in a spiritual way, because that's the way we're built. That's the way we're built. And, and we can't expect to get it. Oh, now I got it. And now that I got it, it's all going to proceed from this more spiritual place. That's not it. That's not it. Our physicality stays with us. And as much as we get it, if we don't keep on getting it, then we don't get it. Or, we, or it just begins to recede in our brains and it doesn't become the, the primary lens through which we view the world through. Now, let me give you a more sort of uh, kind of meat and potatoes way of visualizing this. Imagine a river is rushing in a certain direction, right? That's how kind of like we're born. Remember, like mystically speaking... Our Yetzer Tovs, our positive inclinations, don't enter us until Bar or Bat Mitzvah H. So all the rabbis comment on that. In other words, we become, until that age, very, very much accustomed to a very selfish point of view. Or a very physical point of view, if you will. And that becomes our ingrained nature. You know, my, my dad, uh, who is a, Allah Shalom, who is a practicing psychologist for 50 years, you know, often would say that, that to me, that, that a child at six, after six, that's, that's the kid. That's him. You know? Now, we can change ourselves, obviously. That's absolutely one of the cornerstones of Torah. We have to work on ourselves our whole life and everything like that. But more or less at six, that's what you got. You know, and 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 so so can you imagine? That's a psych, that's a modern psychological insight, modern in terms of world history. Now, can you imagine what the rabbis are saying that the positive inclination doesn't it doesn't enter someone until twelve or thirteen? I mean, that's a long time to be, you know, living with your own, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you something, I'm not, I'm not proud of this moment, but I'll tell you anyway. Last night, my 12-year-old, you know, it was late, I was so tired, was sitting in the kitchen and said, I'm hungry. I said, get yourself something to eat. And I was like, you're in the kitchen, you're 12, get up and make something. You know, I, I didn't add that part, but... And then, later on... Later on, I saw that they were eating something. Fine, you know? So, so, um, so the thing is, is that our, our natures, it's like a rushing river in a certain direction. And, and we get that till we're, say, 12 or 13, right? And now, and now hopefully we're learning about holy and beautiful things throughout that process. But nonetheless, certain, certain things become ingrained within us. You know? And, it's, and then, if you want to change the pattern, here's the point. 
If you want to change the direction of a rushing river, imagine what you have to do. That's not easy. You don't just put like a stick a pole in the river and, and say, okay, now go to the left. I mean, a rushing river travels with great force and it's wide. You want to change the direction of a rushing river? Do you know, just imagine if you actually, that's your project, that's your homework assignment. Whoa, let's see, that's going to take a lot of engineering. Now, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to put maybe some concrete and turn it and then maybe I'm going to have to dig a whole furrow so that the water knows where to go. You know, and I don't want it to go in every direction. I want it to go in a positive direction. And it's a lot of work that would just go on the most simple physical level. Now, with this in mind, listen to the following teaching. One of the best things I know. Rabbi Israel Solanter, the, the founder of the Musser movement, said that the loudest sound in the world is the sound of a bad habit being broken. Right? The loudest sound in the universe is the sound of a habit being broken. Because to do something like this is not a small thing. He also said that to change one character trait is more difficult than learning the entire Talmud. Okay? So we have to... One of the things that I think, um, to the great disservice of people, and I think this happens in um, popular culture, and and I think it happens also in in Judaism, the way it's sort of like commonly taught, is people aren't told how difficult this is to do. You know, they'll they'll give you a lot of the tools, but they, they don't tell you that this is a big job. Again, just imagine rerouting the course of a rushing river. That's what it is to change one personality trait. So, and that is, that is our default setting, if you will. That is our physical nature, which has the chance, and this was God's will, by the way, this is God's will, that it has the chance to get a head start. So in other words, spirit, our spirituality has to play catch-up. That's, that's, that's God's plan. So, which means that, if you understand that, and when it says that God is very patient with us and our fallibility and the errors that we make, and that's why he's so open to tshuva for us to return and to correct everything, why do you think? Because God knows how difficult it is. God knows that we're playing catch-up. God knows these things. So, of course, he makes himself as a loving God, as a good God, for us to be able to have the time and the wherewithal to sort of get it right. And God says that till the last moment that a person is alive, that they can return. This is, by the way, why sort of like pulling the plug on, on, on a, a dying person is so problematic and so fraught with so much danger. Because a person, the last moments of their life, they might look comatose, but... There, I've even had it in my own family. Many examples where people think that someone's in a coma and they, they hear everything that's going around them. By the way, you should know, mystically speaking, our tradition is, is that even the first few days after a person dies, they're in the room and they can hear everything that's going on. You know? Because their soul hasn't quite ascended yet. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole trajectory 
of, of the stages that a, that a soul goes through on the way up. So if it's true for once the soul leaves the body, how much, how much more so while the soul is still in the body? You know, some people can hear. Just clinically, they can't. But some can. So, so there is this moment where theoretically, not even theoretically, I'm sure it happens all the time, for better or for worse, where someone's last moment, even though, you know, the family comes in and goes, oh, too bad, the person's gone. And they're thinking, you know, inside their own comatose bodies, they're going, oh, God, it's just you, it's been you, it's been you always. Why didn't I see it? I'm so sorry, anything that I ever did against you, God. I'm so sorry, because I see it's just been you all along. And then all of a sudden, uh, they flatline. And then they go up, and then everyone up in Shemayim, up in heaven, goes, You did it! At the last moment, you did it! You got it! You got it! You got it! You did it! We were a little worried there. You had like two seconds left. But you pulled it off! You pulled it off! You know? So people have to, you know... People have to consult with, with rabbis and things like that when you, you know, when you, when it's proper to pull the plug and when it's not, because, because there are many things going on that we're not necessarily aware of, that are of critical importance, critical importance, you know, to the person's soul, to their eternal life, you know. Um, so, uh, and every situation is different. So you just have to consult a, a competent uh, rav. Um, so, so, so the point is that we have to have proper expectations for ourselves also. And this is why regular Torah study is so important, because we have to understand that we've been predisposed toward physicality, on purpose, by God's plan, by God's plan. And we are, so to speak, playing catch-up over most of our lives. By God's plan. By God's plan. And so to the extent that you go, how did I do that again? How did I do that again? You know? Every time that person's name comes up, I manage to slip in something negative about that person. How did I do it again? You know? So... You know, it's sort of like I promised I was not going to fight with my wife or a husband or children. And I did it again. How did it happen again? So just be patient. The point is, as long as you're trying, you'll get, you will get it. You will get it. Or you, you'll at least get better at it. That's for sure. You'll at least get better at it. You know? And just to understand again that like rerouting a rushing river. There's a lot of work. We're, we're predisposed toward physicality and you never just get it. You never just get it. And now I got it. It's never that. Because that's the nature of the environment we live in. And, and, and in a way, that's a beautiful thing. And I just want to tie that into just... Um, Something that we read in, in, in the Parsha this week, and then maybe we'll stop. We did uh, Parsha's Naso, and uh, it's almost always right after Shavuos. It's the longest Parsha in the whole, in the whole uh, you know, there's something interesting about it. 
I, I wish I could tell you, uh, this is just, we'll say this is half a thought, but it is a, a thought in itself, just a piece of information, and hopefully I can add to it at another time. But famously, um, Parshas Nasa has 176 sukkim verses, and that's the longest Parsha. And the longest chapter of Tehillim is number 119 in the Psalms, and that's also 176 sukkim. And the longest uh, 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 tractate, Masechta of Gomorrah, also has 176 pages. Right? So, what is the Gematria of 176? To be continued. <laughs> I was supposed to look that up, and I, I, I forgot. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um... So, so, but that, that in itself is just very striking, you know. Um, anyway, one of the reasons, or perhaps the reason, why Parshas Naso is the longest, is because you see something very, very, very unusual in it. Which is, it's talking about the dedication of the Mishkan. Um, wow, you know, I never really thought about it, you know. Wow, that's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Why are we talking about the dedication of the Mishkan and the gifts that all the leaders of the tribes brought for the Mishkan? It's always coming at Shavuos. Almost every year, most years, except in a leap year, I guess, Parshas Naso is coming after Shavuos, which actually makes sense. I'll explain why in a second based on this. This year it's coming before, which is more unusual. But either way, it's always being connected to Shavuos, okay, which is the dedication of the Mishkan, of the Holy Tabernacle in the desert, which is basically the base of Migdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. It's all the same idea. So the Ramban says the following, that what, what was the Mishkan? What was the Holy Temple? It was a recreation of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. That's why it's always coming. Parshas Naso is always coming, I want to say, at the time of Shavuos. Shavuos is when we got the Torah at Mount Sinai. So it's a recreation of the Mount Sinai receiving the Torah experience. So the reason why it makes more sense that in most years, almost every year, that it comes the, the, the Shabbos immediately following Shavuos is because now that you've had your Mount Sinai experience, the Mishkan is a traveling tabernacle. Now you have to take it with you wherever you go. You follow? You have to take Mount Sinai with you wherever you go. You see? See, now most people, but this year God is saying, you know what? Pack your bags before the trip. Don't, don't wait to pack at Mount Sinai. <laughs> pack it before the trip, you know? And I'll tell you an amazing story. Um, uh, my Rebbe, Rip Shlomo, uh, his eldest daughter, uh, Neshama, was getting married and, and I was uh, privileged to be invited to the, to the wedding. And so... I very much wanted to go. Uh, Rabbi Shomo had already left the world at this point. And, uh, and it just worked out that the only flight that I could get in order to get there in time, because it was a Sunday morning wedding, so this was, so it was to leave right after Shabbos, right? And then I could get in for Sunday morning to make the wedding. But Shabbos was late, ended late. It was, I think, the summer at that point. So in order to make that flight, I had to leave the moment after Shabbos. Shabbos, bang, in the car. Which means I had to have have my bags packed. And before Shabbos, 
right? Like this is not so before Schwartz, right? That's the connection. <laughs> it wasn't clear. So, so my wife said to me, I had a dream you missed the flight. She said, you have to pack before Shabbos. And I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm literally not even staying a night. I'm not leaving Monday morning. I'm leaving Sunday night. So what do I have to pack? I have to literally put my suit in a case and I'm packed. So, all right, it's good if I pack before Shabbos, but I don't have to pack before Shabbos. So, so anyway, Shabbos goes out. I pack and I realize, you know something, it's not just the suit. <laughs> I put some underwear in there and some socks and then a shirt and, you know, a tie and shoes. You know, it's, it's a little bit more involved, you know. And sure enough, I missed the flight. And um, it turns out there was one more flight. There was one more flight. And so I go to the gate of the flight that I missed, right? And I'm sitting there, and I figure, okay, so I'll just wait for the next flight. Hopefully I'll get on that. It happens then that uh, Rabbi Smiles, uh, we always learn together, uh, usually Sunday mornings, and then, and that's really the only time we talk for the most part, for the most part. So all of a sudden I'm sitting and I figured, uh, you know, it was Saturday night, I, had to, I brought some food, like I had a malava maka, and I came malava maka, right, in the gate area, and uh, learning a little bit. And um, I remember hearing some people behind me, because it was just a, it was such a uh, distinct accent, they're talking with a, an Australian accent. And I just, you know, I think, oh, you know, it's a nice accent, I don't hear it that often, Australian, you know. Anyway, I'm sitting there. Then, um, Rabbi Smiles calls, which was very unusual, extremely unusual for him to call Saturday night. So, talking with Rabbi Smiles, I said, you know, and he says, what, what flight are you on? You know, when's the next flight? Or, you know, he said, what flight number is it? I said, I don't know. I don't know what flight number is. And Rabbi Smiles is like great at computer. And I figured maybe he wants to know because he can make sure that I get on the flight or whatever it is. You know, some people have different software and stuff like that. So I said, I don't know what flight it is. And I was very comfortable in my seat. I didn't want to check. And then he asks me, like a little bit later, what, what flight number is it? And I said, I, I don't know. I don't know what kind of what, what flight number it is. <laughs> it's like, don't, I didn't want to put it this way, but please don't make me. I'm so comfortable in my chair, please. You know, and then he asked me a third time. He says, what flight number is it? And I thought, okay. You know. So I get up and I go and, and I realize that where I'm sitting, that gate now, that flight that I'm waiting for, is going to Australia. <laughs> and that the flight that I actually have to be on is on the other side of the airport, and it's boarding right now. And I'm on standby for it. So, thanks to Rabbi Smiles calling, so I was like, ah! So I gather up my stuff, and I'm walking really quickly down, you know, the super long corridor, and I get in front of the ticketing, you know, the, the gate of the actual flight, and the flight attendant says, David Sachs, they had just called my name for standby. And I said, yes. And <laughs> I walked without breaking stride, and I walked right onto the flight. It was Mamash and Ace. It was, a, it was an outright miracle. An outright miracle. I know, by the way, just so you know, I heard from Reb Shlomo, in the name of the Rishon Rebbe, 
that it's not just announced in heaven who you marry, but it's also announced in heaven all the people who attend your, your wedding. So, you know, sometimes, you know, it's like, how did that guy end up at my wedding? <laughs> or why didn't that person, we're so close, why didn't that person come to my wedding? It's all announced in heaven. So, you know, just let it go. Whoever comes is supposed to be there. Whoever isn't, isn't. And that's what it is. Um, so, so, uh, so after, after Shavuos, we're reading about the dedication of the Mishkan, this traveling tabernacle. We're taking the Mount Sinai experience with us. Because what was, just so you understand the connection, what was, what was the Mount Sinai experience? It was receiving the Torah. What is the Holy Temple or the Mishkan? It's the place where the tablets of the Torah are. Right? And miracles took place there as well. So that's, that's, the, that's, that's what the Rambam is saying. Right? On, a, on, a, on the most basic level. Um, so, so you see something, you see something really interesting. Um, we know that every single letter of the Torah is unique, and I'm not just talking about in the uh, Aleph base, not just in the alphabet, that's of course true, but I'm talking about in the Torah scroll itself, each letter is, is special and unique, because remember, every word could have been any other word. And every way a word is spelled could have been spelled any other way. Do you understand? So that's why this is... When you begin to understand these things, you begin to really lock into the depths of Torah study. Because you realize that every single thing counts and matters and could be anything else. You see, that's what we all often call that negative space. Because it's not just looking at the object... It's what surrounds the object, or the possibilities of all the other things it could be. And that's, that's when you start to really sort of dive into to real understanding. Okay? So, anyway. Um, so, given the fact that, that every letter is so precious, you have the most repetitive piece of Torah in the entire scroll in Parshas Nasa, which is the following. It talks about each head of the tribe, and then it tells you what offerings they brought. And the craziest thing, they all brought the identical list of things. Identical. Now, if that's the case, so then here's how I would have written it. I would have named all of the tribes, and then I would say, and this is what they each brought. And then I would have put what they brought. And then on to the next chapter. That's not what it does. It says, and this is the tribe of Yehuda, and writes it down. And this is the tribe of Gad, or whatever comes next. And this is what he brought. Identical letters. Identical words. And it goes through all of the tribes with the identical block of text. Right? Very unusual. Very, very unusual. So I saw an explanation. I, 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 I can't tell you. Who, I, I'm sorry. I don't know who said it. But it's just so simple that when you hear it, you go, oh yeah, well, absolutely. So what's the, what, what, what is it? How much God values every single thing that we do, even if you think, well, you know what? This guy's also doing it. You know what? This guy also might be doing it. But you know what? Right now you're doing it. <laughs> 
And that really counts. That really counts. God prizes each one of us and what we're doing. And you know what? And this is just me talking right now. You know what? When the other person brought that thing, you think he brought the same thing? I don't think it was the same thing. Because what he had in mind when he brought it, and what he had to overcome, maybe not to add something or bring something different, right, and put his own little signature on it, you know? You don't know what each person went through to do that thing. So as much as it looks like the same thing, I don't think it was the same thing. Outwardly it was the same thing. And God appreciates every single one of us and every single thing that we're doing, even if you go, well, you know, there's a million other people doing that. There aren't a million other people doing that. There aren't. Simple as it is. God sees what you're doing and He's loving what you're doing. Period. Alright, so... So let's just finish up and just recap, okay? If you can stay up all night, Shavuos night, it's a very, very big blessing. I'll tell you a story. It's good, this is for the men. It's good for the men to go, there's a custom to go at around maybe around maybe a little bit before 4 a.m., around then, to the mikvah, if you can do that. That's for the men. And, uh, and, uh, so I was in Jerusalem on Shavuos one night at Rabbi Green's yeshiva, and I had gone uh, Arab Shavuos before the holiday started to the mikvah, but the learning was so strong and I realized that I sort of had missed the window, and if I went right now, I was going to miss the, the morning service of Chakras. And, I, and, you know, that, that seemed off. And I had sort of already gone before the holiday started. And so I thought, well... So I went up to Rabbi Green, and I said, you know, Rabbi Green, I... Should I go to the mikveh? Did I... I said, I went before the holiday started, you know, which is a different idea, but... And he said... You went? You went before the holiday started? I said, yeah. And he got so excited. He said, you went where you went to the mikvah before the holiday started? I said, yeah. He said, I can't. You, you, you really, you went? I said, yeah. I said, is that the same thing as going at dawn? He said, no. <laughs> but I felt so good that I, you know, something that I you know, totally taken for granted. He made me feel so good that I was like, all right. So I missed it. All right. So maybe next year I'll get it. You know, so... Um, so it, many, many blessings come down to be able to learn all night if you can do it, you know, and uh, definitely highly recommend it. And they say that this is the time when all of the new insights in Torah that you're going to get for the year come down. Because it's sort of like it's the new year for fruit-bearing trees. So, like the fruits, this is like Torah, and the fruits are like ideas in Torah, you know. So they all are sort of like the blessing for that is coming down. Shem should bless us, that we should really appreciate, be patient with our own physicalities, to strive to be God's sweetest turnips, right? To be able to put our sweetness on everything, that everyone should be able to receive the sweetness of God through us, and understand His goodness, to remember that to believe in God and not to believe in His goodness is not to believe in God, right? 
And to try to learn like all the things that we have to know, what, what real belief is. Because it, it, it becomes personal. It's way more than just understanding that God exists. And to live with it every day, to understand that the first thing that we have, just about, almost every year, or right before, is the dedication of the Mishkan, which is the traveling tabernacle, to take that Mount Sinai experience and just to, to live with it, to travel with it. Okay. Have a great week.